Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for July 1st, 2021. Hello, 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 and uh, welcome to Foreign Exchanges. As always, it's great to have you here. Uh, if you are a new listener, I would encourage you to please check out the Foreign Exchanges newsletter at fx.substack.com. Uh, if you're a returning listener, then welcome back. Uh, I'm glad to see you. Uh, well, I guess I'm not actually seeing you, but that came out anyway, sorry. Uh, but it's good to have you back, for sure. Uh, this week, I'm very pleased to be joined by Elizabeth Beavers. Uh, Elizabeth is an attorney, analyst, and advocate for peace and security. She works to counter the abuses of U.S. foreign policy by consulting on NGO advocacy campaigns, lobbying lawmakers, grassroots organizations, and frequently publishing law and policy analysis from an anti-militarist perspective. Uh, on that note, she has a new piece out uh, for at the Fellow Travelers blog, a uh, place we just talked a little bit about last week. Um, so if you haven't checked them out already, uh, I'll have a link to this article in the show description. It is called Ilhan Omar Was Right, The Ugly Reality of International Justice, and uh, gets into, I think, uh, one of the really kind of under-discussed issues uh, in U.S. foreign policy and international affairs, one that Congresswoman Omar uh, really laid out quite explicitly uh, a couple of weeks ago when she uh, asked Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, where does somebody who is seeking justice for an American war crime or an Israeli war crime or a war crime committed by uh, any of the other combatants in, say, Afghanistan or in Israel-Palestine, uh, where do they go for justice? The United States doesn't recognize the International Criminal Court. Uh, it insists that it doesn't need to because our domestic uh, we insist that we don't need to because our domestic court system is the best in the world and more than capable of handling any uh, claims of international violations of international law, war crimes, etc. And yet we don't prosecute violations of international law. Uh, we don't prosecute war crimes. We didn't prosecute a single person for uh, the most egregious example of those things in, in recent memory, the Bush torture program. Uh, so that's patently false. And yet we uh, you know, still don't recognize the international criminal court and basically have created a system, as Elizabeth will talk about, where the United States has impunity to do what it wants, when it wants, without having to worry about any legal repercussions. Uh, so we'll get into uh, the state of international justice. We'll, we'll walk through her piece. We'll get into the state of international justice and the sort of, um, the sort of structures that the United States has created or the insulation that it has from any kind of international justice system. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about what an, a different international justice system could look like. Uh, it's hard to envision one that doesn't require some voluntary cooperation by countries like the United States, chiefly the United States, uh, who are certainly powerful enough and you know uh, uh, have no reason to... Uh, there's nothing forcing them to participate in an international justice system. Um, so it's it's hard to imagine anything happening unless the United States sort of agrees to allow it to happen, and that doesn't seem to be in the cards. But we will talk about that uh, anyway in the interview. Um, I will have uh, a little announcement at the end, so uh, please stick around for that. Uh, and... Uh, 
that's uh, just to pre after previewing that, uh, I'm going to uh, turn it over to Elizabeth. I get the interview started. All right. I am, as promised, being joined by Elizabeth Beavers, attorney, analyst, uh, advocate for peace and security. Uh, her new piece at the Fellow Travelers blog is Ilhan Omar, Omar Was Right, The Ugly Reality of International Justice. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, well, I, I have a link to that in the show description, of course. Elizabeth, thank you for being on the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm a fan. <laughs> thank you. That's very nice to hear. Always, always nice to hear that, that there are fans out there. That makes <laughs> one of you, at least. Um, so uh, let's kind of take people back, although the uh, Ilhan Omar's many uh, crimes against uh, America's global image or whatever it is that we're freaked out about uh, are inexplicably back in the news again after an interview that she did with Jake Tapper uh, and some, I think, uh, cynical uh, cutting by Republicans of, of the video of that interview. But I, I don't I don't fully know all the details. Um, but let's uh, even though it's back in the news, take us back through kind of the origins of this uh, moment of outrage and, and what exactly uh, Congresswoman Omar said to make people so angry at her. Yeah, like you said, it's pretty unbelievable. We're doing this again. The story won't die. So, um, but originally, Secretary of State Blinken was appearing before the House Foreign Affairs Committee, which, of course, Congresswoman Omar sits on that committee. And as part of her line of questioning to him, um, from my perspective, she asked what was kind of a perfect question. And I'm, I'm going to just give like a small amount of background before getting into what she actually said. So basically, you know, even though the United States pays all this lip service to being a proponent of accountability for atrocities and has even fully supported international criminal court prosecutions in places like Darfur or Libya, the U.S. has been feuding with the ICC pretty much since its inception. Um, and the fundamental U.S. position across every administration on a bipartisan basis has been, you know, international criminal accountability is for those bad guys, those governments that can't be trusted to uphold the rule of law. Not us, though. We're a liberal democracy. We have the best court system in the world. We're the champions of the, you know, rule-based global order. Uh, no ICC needed here. And so that is all being put to the test right now because the ICC is investigating atrocities in Afghanistan, which necessarily includes those committed by the United States. Um, and so the U.S. is specifically opposing that investigation and also one into Palestine because it would implicate Israel. And so I say all that to say that's why her question was so perfect, because she really concisely asked the obvious follow up question, which is for all the victims of atrocities in Afghanistan and Palestine, whether that's at the hands of Hamas, the Taliban, the United States or Israel, where are they supposed to go for justice if there's no accountability happening in domestic courts and we oppose the international court stepping in, what then? Uh, and so, you know, we kind of all know what happened from there. She was relentlessly attacked by her colleagues and the media for basically listing all of those entities, the United States, Israel, 
Hamas, the Taliban, all in the same sentence uh, and daring to suggest, quote unquote, moral equivalence. Um, so, you know, again, like she didn't just come up with a list of bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, they're all entities. factually yeah. under investigation. Yes, that's these are that's two what's amazing. Yeah. These are two specific cases that are under investigation that the United States is working to oppose and thus her question. So, but by even kind of listing them in the same sentence, she has committed this, you know, total (laughs) boo-boo that (laughs) everyone is very upset about. Uh, It's, it's, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, this objective, it is objective fact that these four entities are all under investigation in two different cases. And yet, uh, somehow we've extrapolated to, from that to moral equivalence, which is uh, just bizarre. And and you know, I think bad faith runs through all of this. So we can we can come back to that. But there's sort of bad faith interpretations everywhere in this in this process. Uh, but her question, I mean, her question is is was sort of shocking to hear come out of a, a congressperson's mouth. Really, I mean, I feel like. You know, you couldn't have imagined that happening, um, you know, just 10 years ago, like just the the concept of uh, somebody in Congress having been elected to Congress actually asking the question, where does somebody go to get justice for an American war crime is is uh, it it would have been unthinkable. Uh, But it gets very specifically at uh, something you talk about in your piece, which is this sort of cynical uh, U.S. relationship with the the International Criminal Court, and there is a long uh, list at this point of incidents or you know kind of interactions going back to the Clinton administration, uh, which sort of signed the 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 statute that uh, brought the ICC into existence, but never bothered even trying to to get it ratified. Um, you know, going through. Uh, some, as you said, the, these kind of mentions, you know, or insistences by the United States that uh, other countries have to abide by the ICC. Other countries should be, uh, you know, when when other countries like, you know, it's happened in Uganda, it's happened in the Philippines, kind of talk about withdrawing from the ICC. That always draws a, a very stern uh, comment from the United States. And yet the United States is unwilling to, you know, kind of open itself up to the same uh, level of scrutiny. Talk about, go take us through uh, the relationship here between the U.S. and the ICC and some of the uh, fun, fun little uh, quirks that have emerged uh, uh, through that process. Yeah, it's kind of a wild story. And and like you said, you know, even a sitting congressperson daring to suggest that the United States might need to face the same standard as any other country was, um, you know, sacrilege until so recently. And so it really is a a brave line of questioning that she put forward, but it is sort of the obvious question um, based on uh, where we are right now. And so to your question, to get into how we got here, as you mentioned, President Clinton sort of on his way out of office did sign the Rome Statute, which is the governing treaty for the International Criminal Court. And I should say the U.S. was fairly involved in the negotiations and the creation of the court. It's not like um, they were absent in any way. But so, but then, of course, you know, uh, by signing, that doesn't actually bindingly hold the United States to any sort of commitments. Um, but nonetheless, 
um, immediately upon taking office, the George W. Bush administration, and, and this effort was led by none other than Mr. John Bolton himself. There's a lot of like familiar figures that keep coming in and out of the story. Um, uh, unsigned it, which is uh, not like really a thing you can, <laughs> you can do, but uh, <laughs> did this really dramatic unsigning. Um, but they like erased Clinton's name from the paper. <laughs> Just like a Sharpie. Yeah. And I think <laughs> letter, like we are withdrawing our signature and, um, you know, we don't need your ICC. Basically, it was accompanied by all these speeches. Again, it's always been rooted in American exceptionalism of like, this is so superfluous. We have the best courts in the world. We don't need you telling us what to do. Um, there was also, I have to say this just like bonkers speech by Donald Rumsfeld at the time without a hint of irony where um, he, he sort of threateningly said, you know, um, the ICC, if we were to, you know, cooperate, we would be subjecting ourselves to these quote unquote politicized investigations that would put our soldiers at risk. And it could disincentivize us from engaging in the world, which would make us all less safer. So you all don't want that. Um, and it was just sort of this like giving away the game of like the underlying perspective is always we should do what we want with impunity as part of maintaining our military empire. We don't need to have any uh, scrutiny. Um, so, so that all happened. And then um, not stopping there, the George W. Bush administration, um, this is pretty crazy, went through a series of negotiating bilateral immunity agreements with several countries, basically uh, threatening to cut off aid to those countries if they wouldn't sign an immunity agreement with the U.S., basically making sure to protect them against any sort of ICC scrutiny for their behavior in, in that particular country. Um, and I do just have to throw in a pretty wild example, which is just gets to the heart of the hypocrisy here, which is that um, I think it was in 2003, um, Serbia, um, Serbia's leader spoke out and was saying, um, you know, the United States was <laughs> simultaneously threatening to cut off aid to Serbia if they didn't join um, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, which, you know, is, is another ad hoc international criminal court, um, and pushing them like there's got to be accountability for all these atrocities, but then also actually cutting off aid because they wouldn't sign an immunity agreement to protect U.S. soldiers from the ICC. And so Serbia pointed out it's it's really pretty wild for the United States to ask us to make our own citizens um, uh, cooperate with international criminal procedures, but also to protect Americans from the exact same standard. Um, so, so they did that, all these agreements. And then I have to mention this just bananas piece of legislation, which is on the books <laughs> to this day, Yes, it is. which is, is colloquially called the Hague Invasion Act. It's really called the American <laughs> Protection Act, which sounds much more, you know, serious, but, but Truly, this this is just wild. It it authorizes military force if the ICC attempts to detain U.S. personnel or its allies, and it it prohibits any cooperation with the court. Um, so just like a complete reactionary backlash from the U.S. to even the suggestion that our actions could in any way be reviewed by international court, and then it really came to a head with the Trump administration 
Um, and this was because, and we'll get into it, I'm sure the Afghanistan case, the court decided to take it up, which potentially puts US behavior under that microscope. And so uh, Trump slapped sanctions on the prosecutor for the ICC and imposed travel restrictions on her. Um, that was pretty widely condemned and that was met with a lot of like, are you kidding me kind of backlash across the world. But I do wanna say, you know, I'm glad President Biden's administration has removed those sanctions, but they really haven't changed the policy. The underlining posture is still, you know, we won't sanction you, but we completely oppose your actions looking into U.S. or Israeli atrocities. Yeah, let's I mean, let's talk about that. The the the, the two cases that Omar was talking about, one involves an investigation into rights abuses in Israel, Palestine. The other involves uh, an investigation into war crimes in, in Afghanistan, which are broadly you know construed and could uh, they involve the U.S. and Israel, but they're not targeting the U.S. and Israel. They're, they're looking at those conflicts, uh, kind of broadly speaking. Um, but the, the, the argument here, or one of the arguments that's, that's leveled against the ICC is, well, the U.S. and, and Israel uh, aren't, full, aren't ICC members, so the ICC doesn't have a right to investigate them. And yet, uh, really under the, the, the ICC's own rules, it does have a right to conduct these investigations. Talk about uh, talk about that. You, you you write about it in the piece, but you know, kind of uh, tell people where that authority comes from. Yeah, definitely. And and I I think this is really important to understand because it, even just sort of a basic understanding of how the court works and how it gets its jurisdiction sort of gives away the game, which is that um, the U.S. actually has some pretty clear exit ramps from this whole conflict. Um, they're just choosing not to use them. So um, to review again, you know, when when Representative Omar listed the U.S., Israel, Hamas, the Taliban, she wasn't, again, just arbitrarily listing entities. She's referencing the subjects of two specific ICC cases that the United States is working to oppose. Um, so she didn't put this list together. The United States did when it decided to oppose those cases. Um, but as you say, like there, there are no specific charges here. There are investigations that are happening. And so um, I'll just talk briefly about how ICC cases and investigations come about at all, because there's decades of U.S. propaganda basically obscuring how it actually works. Um, so, you know, as you mentioned, U.S. opposition to this is that the court can't investigate crimes of countries that haven't ratified the Rome Statute and so aren't member states. But that's just not really how it works. Um, the ICC's jurisdiction has several limitations. First, it, it prosecutes the specific crimes of genocide, ethnic cleansing, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. And unless a case is referred to the court by the UN Security Council, it has to focus on atrocities conducted on the territory of or by nationals of states that have ratified the Rome Statute. Um, a member state can request an investigation, which is what happened in the Palestine situation, or the prosecutor can take it up on her own with approval of the court's pretrial chamber, which is what happened in the Afghanistan situation. And so, you know, as you mentioned here, look, Afghanistan is a member state of the ICC and the United States chose to commit war crimes on the territory of a member state to the ICC. 
And so uh, within the Rome statutes and rules, that's that's how it works. You make yourself vulnerable to scrutiny um, through that behavior. And so, you know, I should say, because this is really key, um, additionally, there are further screens that the court applies. Um, they they look at the gravity, meaning it focuses on the most severe crimes with the biggest impact. They also use their discretion not to pursue a case if, for whatever reason, it wouldn't serve the broader interest of justice. But here's the really key requirement, which is the court follows the principle of complementarity. And complementarity means that the ICC is strictly a court of last resort and that it has no standing to move forward on a case if the state's own domestic legal system is handling it. And that doesn't even require prosecution, just like genuine investigations. So that's kind of the key fact that the United States doesn't really address. And it goes to the heart of the Congresswoman's question, which is, you know, you could get out of this whole thing by literally just showing any kind of interest in holding your own accountable. Because you haven't done that, the ICC is taking a look, but you could make it go away by doing that. Um, and so that's kind of the question that the U.S. needs to answer is, are you going to meet that standard of complementarity and therefore make this whole thing go away or just sort of complain about <laughs> being investigated at all by anyone? Yeah, this I mean, this gets us into the question of um, American exceptionalism and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the the argument that John Bolton used. Uh, and that is often used when when saying, you know, when explaining why the United States uh, doesn't deem itself, um, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, under the ICC's purview is that is this argument that uh, our court systems are are the best in the world and, and will prosecute all this stuff. But um, I, the first time that happens will be like the next time that happens will be the first mm -hmm. uh, time that it happens. So, I mean, there, there's. You can look actually at the the factual record here to to know that that's uh, a, a bogus claim. Um, but there are different it, there are different layers, I think, to the the question of exceptionalism. And you have the sort of the one that that we talk about, which is the one that's acceptable to talk about publicly, uh, which is this notion of our court system being being superior to the ICC. Uh, but there are, you know, there are other deeper cuts here. One of them is, you know, uh, that it's just different when the United States does these sorts of things than when any other country does it. And the United States should be treated differently. Mm -hmm. uh, and the sort of deeper cut there is that the United States is uh, you know the, the the global empire and should have impunity for anything it does. Um, I, can you kind of unpack this question of exceptionalism and where you uh, you, you know where you sort of uh, see that discourse and sort of what what the what's the real message I guess that, that the United States sends to the rest of the world when it when it uh, you know, deems itself somehow above or, or separate from uh, the ICC, even even as it sort of tries to hold other countries accountable to the the same the same body. Yeah, well, you know, when um, when Secretary of State Blinken announced that the Biden administration was going to rescind these sanctions and and the the visa restrictions on the ICC prosecutor, but then reiterated opposition to. Um, the ICC investigations in Afghanistan and Palestine, it was sort of a little microcosm of all this messaging wrapped up because he had this 
interesting additional paragraph in his statement about how the United States will continue to work in service of uh, supporting accountabilities, accountability for perpetrators of atrocities, uh, especially in Iraq, Syria, and Burma. <laughs> uh, and so it, it just was kind of interesting, like in the same statement, we and our powerful allies, we oppose that, but we're more than happy to, to help um, bring accountability in, uh, you know, places that uh, don't challenge our resources, power, and wealth, essentially. And so uh, to me, like, that's the whole point here. I will say that, you know, there, there are some scholars who think it's not the worst thing in the world if the, the mandate of the ICC eventually kind of dies out and the, the promise of international criminal accountability isn't really the direction we're headed as we move away from like a carceral system of justice. I, I don't know where I stand on that yet, but I, I think my firm stance is pretty much if the ICC is going to exist and it's going to have a mandate to bring accountability for the worst atrocities in the world, it's not justice if that doesn't apply also to the most powerful and the most wealthy. And of course, that is the United States at this time. Like that is the entity that is conducting just brutal acts of aggression and violence with complete impunity. And so, you know, a norm isn't a norm if it doesn't apply to all. Um, and, and the general U.S. attitude that's been put out there is we're perfectly happy to support and even advocate for perpetrators of atrocities to be brought to justice so long as it doesn't challenge our own supremacy. And I, you know, I think it perpetuates injustices of race, of power, of um, uh, resources, you know, to just look at the ICC so far has been pretty much exclusively focused on Africa. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just no justice at all. It's creating this sort of apartheid, like a two-tiered system where it's amnesty for the most powerful and regular criminal procedure for everybody else. And so um, to me, the status quo is just untenable. And I think it's really important that progressives realize that and be really vocal in urging change. Um, yeah, I want to kind of dig dig into that a little bit more, because this has been one of the criticisms of the ICC, you know, over the, the years has been um, that it's sort of a tool of Western hegemony over, you know, because because most of the cases that it's uh, investigated have been in Africa, and you know, you see, you know, some uh, some cases in Asia, and and there's been sort of this, um, I think, increasing cynicism, and that's why you see countries like Uganda and, and um, you know the Philippines withdrawing from or or trying to or at least uh, making some motion to withdraw um from the court because it's it, you know it, it does sort of present this image of a two-tiered uh, international justice system uh, can you you know kind of take get into that a little bit and and whether you know it seems like what we're seeing now this sort of uh, over the last couple of years this back and forth between the united states and, and the court um, you know, it's sort of, I don't want to say it absolves the court, but it makes it pretty clear that that's pretty much the only way the court could be allowed to function. Like the Europe and the United States are not going to just sort of voluntarily participate in this, right? As long as the court kind of sticks to Africa or sticks to Asia, then that's one thing. But as soon as it kind of turns its attention to one of these, you know, one of the wealthy 
uh, more powerful countries, that's when, you know, it runs into a, to a sort of brick wall. But I don't, I mean, you, you've obviously, you know, observed this kind of happening uh, over the, the, you know, these several years. So, so take us, you know, kind of talk about um, that, that whole, that criticism and, and, you know, where, where, where you think it is now. Oh, I completely agree. And I, I also think it's, I will say, indicative of sort of broader human rights industrial complex, <laughs> which is, you know, the the whole mandate of um, monitoring human rights compliance and bringing accountability and utilizing international mechanisms and organizations. Um, the, the way that things work right now is that those kind of inherently in a way become two-tiered and become um, tools of imperialism sometimes. And, you know, Peter Beinart has written a couple of really great pieces on this because the, the Biden administration has, um, you know, been really vocal about like human rights are back and our foreign policy. And, um, you know, many have observed, and I'm certainly not the first one, that like human rights are never at the center of U.S. foreign policy. Human rights are a tool that in the service of broader U.S. interests are sort of pulled out um, when it serves other foreign policy goals. And, and that's true of the ICC as well. Um, you know, the scholar Catherine Sickink has written about what's called the justice cascade, which is you know, what a lot of people have observed for the last few years where there are all these prosecutions and truth commissions and um, all these things happening that are identifying the world's worst atrocities and bringing to justice those who perpetrate them. But she's pointed out that has totally missed the United States. The United States has not experienced that at all. And so, you know, so many years ago, Martin Luther King Jr. talked about the U.S. as the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. And so, um, I certainly think that's still true, and I think many other people do as well. And so um, if there is a system that is completely out of reach of touching um, the U.S. military empire, what sort of justice is that at all? If it can only be utilized among the weakest, among among those whose, whose interests just aren't that important to the United States, um, what kind of justice is that at all? And so um, I, I think it's a really big question. You know, one, one thing I'm kind of interested in is um, if we were to move away from specifically the prosecu prosecutorial mandate of the court, if we were to move to a system of complementarity where, um, you know, it, it, basically if the United States is not willing to adhere to the same standard as everyone else, I do wonder if there is a standard they would be willing to uphold, for example, if um, if complementarity could be met by change laws, formal apologies, reparations, truth commissions, something that's short of criminal prosecution, um, that's something that maybe should be explored in a in a multilateral diplomatic way to think through. Okay, well, if we're just never going to have a situation where everyone is held to the same prosecutorial criminal standard, are there other standards we all would be willing to hold ourselves to that's something short of that? Now, I'm still really skeptical that the U.S. would pretty much ever hold itself um, vulnerable to international scrutiny. I mean, you know, those are all things they still haven't done for their torture program, like formal apologies or reparations or anything like that. Um, but the U.S. needs to come up with something pretty quick that they are willing to do to hold themselves accountable, because really the promise of international justice, which is still a relatively young um, experiment, is is dying, and, and in large part because the U.S. has completely escaped that 
um, accountability and, and thus it has really just shut out a, a good portion of the world's victims. Um, yeah, I, I, I keep mentioning, <laughs> I feel like I keep mentioning Uganda uh, because I should say this is one of my favorite, just like incredibly hypocritical uh, incidents in, you know, since I've been doing like, you know, writing about U.S. foreign policy. Um, Uganda is still in the ICC, uh, but, you know, it's not like the Philippines or South Africa or Burundi withdrawn. Uh, but there was this big dust up in 2016 when, uh, you know, you got to held a, its presidential election and you know, President Museveni was, of course, reelected as he always is. Um, but he, you know, was talking at the time about pulling out of the ICC and, and you know, sort of criticizing the ICC for, you know, its excessive focus on Africa and kind of lambasting it. And I remember the Obama administration, like, just coming down really hard on it. I mean, rhetorically, obviously, there were no like uh, repercussions, but uh, just really criticizing Museveni for, for criticizing the ICC from the standpoint of a country that's not even in the ICC. And it was just sort of like uh, like one of these moments where you're like, I, I can't, you know, I can't actually believe that they're able to get away with this. <laughs> like, the, you know, you're able to make this criticism uh, of another country when, you know, you yourselves are not willing to, to participate in the same system. Um, but that, so that's why I keep, I keep bringing up Uganda because it's like the, my, one of my hooks for this, this whole uh, story of, of the ICC and international justice. Um, when you talk about alternatives, I mean, you can talk a little bit more about what an alternative system could look like. And I, I feel like, you know, there's a couple of things there's, uh, you have to get around the problem that, that, uh, countries that are powerful enough to say, we're not going to participate in this, uh, can get away with that. Like the United States, uh, you have a problem of enforcement, um, again, you know, sort of the same thing, but a country that's, uh, able to say, okay, we'll participate in the investigation, but you know, if you find somebody, you know, one of our nationals, uh, guilty, we'll do something about it, like invade the Hague, for example. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, you, you know, how do you enforce, there's, there's really no mechanism of enforcement against countries that are, you know, are, are of a status that they can resist that sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I wonder if, you know, there could be a, a court that doesn't, again, yeah, as you said, sort of doesn't go through the carceral process or the, the prosecution, but maybe does the investigation kind of dumps the results of the investigation in the lap of the country that's being investigated and says, here, you know, here's what we found. You can do something with this or not. And kind of, you know, face the, the, the criticism if you don't do anything about it. Is that like, what are, what are some of the options here for trying to overcome this? as you, what you, you know, term the, the, the global justice apartheid. Yeah, sure. So, you know, my piece I wrote up here is um, sort of a preview of a broader law review article that I've got forthcoming where I try to toy around with some of these options. And, um, you know, you mentioned the the Obama administration and, and Uganda situation, and um, we definitely should talk a bit more about the Obama administration and um, its own perspective on accountability, because that's really key to this story. But um, before we get into that, you know, I, I try to detail in my longer piece 
quote unquote exit ramps that might exist because this this current tension between the US and ICC really is kind of untenable and and the the fate of broader global justice is sort of what's at stake here. And so, you know, obviously the very best way to protect against an ICC case would be to like not conduct atrocities, <laughs> especially on uh, the territory of an ICC member state. But um, the U.S. did choose to do that. And so it's too late for that one. Um, uh, you know, a second way is just to fulfill the complementarity standard. I mean, sort of what you described there is kind of the way it exists now, which is, you know, the Rome statute explicitly says um, if the the state of jurisdiction, if the actual domestic courts are handling this genuinely on their own, the ICC is not going to step in. Um, and, and that, again, that doesn't even require full prosecution. The country could say, you know, for this and this reason, we've decided not to move forward on a prosecution, but we have gone through a genuine criminal investigation and come up with a record of the wrongs. And um, so we have decided internally not to prosecute this matter, but we have investigated it. Like the US could do that and it would make this whole thing go away. But as you mentioned, that's something that's never happened. Um, and of course, number three here, this is another one that's hard to imagine, but um, if the United States is unable or unwilling, and, th and that is language from the Rome statute, countries that are unable or unwilling to do that, um, that is what the ICC is for. I mean, the US could just cooperate in the investigation. Um, that's obviously uncomfortable, and that's not something the U.S. ever wants to do, but it could set the precedent that no one is above the law. It could end up in not even having specific charges at, at this time for the broader interest of justice for whatever reason. Like, we don't know where that would actually land, but that is something the U.S. could do. Um, but then kind of getting, I think, to your broader question there is, okay, well, if none of that is going to happen if the United States um, is not going to hold itself to the same standard as any other country, um, then there needs to be a reckoning with the reality that the current system means amnesty for the most powerful um, and accountability is for everyone else. And so it really may be time to put a final nail in the coffin of the promise of international criminal justice. And, and like I mentioned, some folks think that's for the best. Um, but, you know, if not, maybe there is some sort of solution here, you know, something I've been toying around with is technically right now the complementarity standard does require domestic criminal investigations um, and a decision to prosecute or not, but what if, what if it were amended so complementarity could include other things like formal apologies or changed laws or, or reparations or truth commissions or, or some other mechanisms that are not criminal in nature. I wonder if in exchange for um, the U.S. becoming a member of the Rome Statute, if they would work to support amendments like that. Um, I, When I've thrown this idea out before, I've gotten pushback in the form that like, okay, well then wouldn't every country then just choose to like issue a formal apology and move on rather than going through any kind of accountability process? Um, and my answer to that is like, that is way better than what we have right now. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> right, right. What we have now is just complete impunity. I mean, um, we definitely should talk about this U.S. specific situation and what happened in Afghanistan and what's happened to the people who perpetrated that. I mean, um, even something like a formal apology would just be such a massive improvement over whatever we already have. So, um, you know, I fully recognize each of these exit ramps are kind of politically untenable and have a lot of big hurdles, but those are the consequences of choosing to have a torture program and to antagonize the International Criminal Court. The U.S. created this problem, and it needs to have some creativity in finding a solution. 
Yeah, you. I mean, you mentioned the torture program, and, and you did, you know, talk about the Obama administration, which is sort of, you know, although um, the kind of big flare up in the in this relationship with the ICC did happen under Trump. Uh, the best example of the the notion of impunity and and the uh, the the idea that complementarity is just not an option real it's not realistic uh comes from the obama administration and its refusal to prosecute anyone from the bush administration this whole you know let's look forward not backward nonsense um you know that that yeah you know you can sort of take us through that especially which is especially galling uh again from an administration that really talked favorably about the ICC for other countries. Like, this is a good thing for you. It's not really for us, but for you guys, for you little people, it's, it's yeah. good. You should do that. Um, yeah. I mean that you sort of take us, take it, take us through the Obama administration, because you're right. That, that is sort of the, the, the window, I think, into kind of the, the core of the problem. Yeah. The flare up happening in the Trump administration was just sort of a, an accident of fate where the, the, ICC prosecutor had already been doing a preliminary um, review into the Afghanistan situation for like 10 years. Um, but uh, it was while Trump was in office that she decided to formally take it up as an investigation and get that pretrial chamber approval. Um, so that's when it happened, but that's certainly not when the actual um, behaviors and, and crimes that we're talking about actually happened. Um, I do think it is kind of important to walk through this because I'm, you know, um, as I am getting up there in age, I'm realizing that uh, people not much younger than me, like, don't remember this stuff. And, and it's, it's starting to get lost into the like black hole of history a little bit. Um, but from 2002 to 2009, the United States ran a series of black sites for rendition, secret detention, enforced disappearances and torture all over the world as part of its, you know, post 9-11 quote unquote war on terror paradigm. Um, we know for a fact that at least four of those black sites were in Afghanistan and you know, it's just very important to say they knew it, they 100% knew that what they were doing was totally illegal, um, not just under international law that the United States has willingly ratified, but also as a matter of US domestic law. Um, but to try to cover themselves, the Bush administration um, worked with the Office of Legal Counsel within the DOJ to come up with these basically permission slips. They're, they're called the torture memos now. It's just this sort of um, uh, preposterous legal analysis that um, sets forth to basically say that these uh, enhanced interrogation techniques, which is a, you know, one of the hall of famers for euphemisms for torture, um, that, that they were totally permissible and that they were lawful. And, you know, it's really interesting to note now, I mean, those memos have long since been rescinded and um, they're, they're just kind of jokes from a legal matter, but um, the authors themselves noted a lack of confidence that the court, any court would ever uphold that reasoning, but they, reason that a court would probably never take the question up anyway. And you know what? They were totally right. Um, U.S. courts have not taken this up. When Barack Obama talked about moving forward, not looking backwards, that's exactly what happened. Um, you know, I just, I recognize this stuff is kind of ugly, but, you know, what we know about what happened, happened in Afghanistan was just brutal. Um, one of the most infamous black sites was there. They called it the salt pit. 
um, one of the interrogators said it was such a great place for interrogations because it was like a dungeon. And it was totally blacked out. Guards needed headlamps to make their way around. Um, people were chained to the ceiling, left that way for days or even weeks, not allowed to sleep, made to use diapers. They were sexually assaulted. Um, at least one man's detention was completely hidden from the International Committee of the Red Cross. One man died while he was being tortured and his family still has no idea what happened to his body. Um, just absolutely brutal stuff. And so I just want to reiterate, you know, the people who planned this way in advance, helped it happen, tried to cover it up, still defend it, are living really nice lives. Um, people like Stephen Bradbury, um, who, you know, worked in the Office of Legal Counsel, or Gina Haspel, uh, made their way right back into government. Gina Haspel was actually at a black site um, and actually helped um, actually execute the torture plan and she became the CIA director. Um, John Yu, who was the lead author on the torture memos, he has a really cushy position in academia and he goes on cable news all the time. James Mitchell is a contractor who basically designed the torture techniques. He sells books about his crimes and he also is found on cable news all the time. So, you know, I just say all that to remind everyone like this is it's just so unacceptable and it's really gross that that these people knew exactly what they were doing and um not only have they never been prosecuted, they haven't been in, been investigated. Um so you know I do want to point out, you know, there was a quote unquote review that Eric Holder, when he was the attorney general, did approve and, and helped go forward. Um, this was from uh, uh, John Durham was the attorney who was tasked with looking into the interrogation program once the Obama administration took over. But I really want to emphasize he was not doing a criminal review. He was not an independent prosecutor. Um, and this is really important. He was totally barred from looking into any abuses that happened under the auspices of the torture memos. So basically, if interrogators were like, oh, yeah, we're just following the torture memos and the guidance that we were given, um, they were off the table and they weren't being investigated. And this this detail is really wild, which is that Barack Obama wrote personally to CIA officials to reassure them that his administration would not allow prosecutions of anyone who relied on those memos and he would make sure they were protected. Um, and they were, they absolutely were. So, you know, Durham closed his review without any kind of public report, without any criminal charges materializing. And that was it. That was pretty much it. You know, there were congressional investigations. The most famous is the Senate Intelligence Committee's investigation that came up with a, a fairly long report, most of which is still redacted classified, um, but but we haven't actually had a process where victims were interviewed, where uh, the, the perpetrators were even kind of criminally investigated. We haven't had any charges and prosecutions. So um, this was a deliberate policy choice. This is something that the Obama administration decided probably, you know, for political reasons that they just didn't want to expend their capital on. Um, and decided to move forward. And that's what's happened. And there are still ramifications and general generational damage that has resulted from that decision. Um, and that, again, is why the ICC is even looking into this in the first place is because we won't. It's sort of it's sort of wild the the extent or the level of kind of making new legal principles up kind of out of thin air mm -hmm. that attended this like 
looking forward, not backward, which if you applied it in, in general would, you know, end prosecutions for yeah, everything. That's all crime. That's everything. Uh, like just crime would be, you know, would not exist anymore. Yeah. Uh, and, and the idea that if you get your in-house lawyer to write you a memo that says that what you're doing is okay, then you don't have to worry about it. You could just say to the court, look, if I have a memo, it's, it's fine. Like the, it's sort of just like inventing these absurd principles to kind of justify in action, which I think you're right, is was was political. I mean, there was a, a desire, you know, the idea of looking forward, not backward was about not, you know, it, it was really a political kind of standard. It was about we have an agenda. We don't want to get hung up with Republicans criticizing us for uh, prosecuting these people. So let's just sweep it under the rug and move on. And I think that was that was the key consideration. Yeah, absolutely. And and look, I'm not an idiot. I get that, you know, like I understand an administration comes in with an agenda and has, you know, limited time and limited political capital to spend. But it's kicking a can down the road because this isn't over yet. Like, there still has been no justice for this. The ICC is still looking into it. Again, some of these people went back into government. Um, and and there, there really is like cultural damage that came from sweeping this torture program under the rug. I really do think it, it set precedent for some of the compounding abuses that came forward in the Trump administration and continue to happen is that we've got this culture of impunity that we have decided on as a country that we are we are willing to just sort of sweep it away and rehabilitate people. I mean, we see it happening all the time, people rehabilitating George W. Bush himself and, and the Fuller administration. And um, we just sort of get used to the standard of, of just complete crime happening in our name and, and that continuing forward without any kind of accountability. And so the problem doesn't go away. It just changes and mutates. And so, look, I understand why a Biden administration, the last thing they want to do is revisit crimes from like 20 years ago and go after an administration that was, you know, there's been, it's two administrations away at this point. I completely understand why that's so politically untenable. But once again, these are the consequences of having a torture program. That was not something the United States had to do. It's what they chose to do. And so choosing to um, suffer those consequences and face what accountability and the rule of law demand, that is a responsibility as a country who, you know, seeks to uphold this global empire and, and you know, be the quote unquote, like, global rule of law decider like that's that's what's incumbent upon us if we actually are a country that we say that we are which is you know interested in upholding the rule of law and accountability for all then that you have to do something about that and so that's that's the real test that's happening right now and and so far they're failing it um yeah i mean i think even even with respect to to things that the the trump administration did and these aren't necessarily legal considerations but you see the same um, sort of unwillingness to undo even things that you criticized uh, because you don't want to take the political fallout. I mean, you know, the, the Biden, Joe Biden criticized Trump's Cuba policy, criticized him, you know, his Iran policy, criticized, uh, you know, you can go down the list of things that are still more or less in place, you know, have continued and we're, you know, going on uh, going to be six months now into the administration. Uh, and they just haven't, in some ways, they're in some areas, they're not even bothering. Like there was just a big 
Washington Post article the other day about, you know, they're, they're just not going to do anything about Cuba. Like this was a, a thing that Biden thought was important enough to talk about during the campaign, how damaging uh, Trump's decision to sort of reverse some of the things that Obama had done on Cuba. And, you know, we're, we're just ignoring it, basically. We don't have time to deal with it. And that's the same thing. I mean, it's this kind of we don't want to spend the political capital undoing things that have already been done. We just want to move forward. It's, it's um, you know, that's the principle. It just in this particular case, uh, you know, was applied to something so extraordinarily heinous that it, it kind of stands out. But I, I don't think the I think the principle is a fairly, fairly common one. Um, I, I want to go in a slightly different direction as we kind of close out here, because you, you've written, um, you know, in the past about, uh, some of the, um, let's say outdated, uh, authorizations for military force that are still on the books that, that, that the U S uses, uh, to justify, present day actions like you i mean you you wrote a piece uh some time back about the the absurdity of using the 2002 iraq aumf to to justify the Qasem soleimani mm-hmm. uh, assassination and there's now been some discussion in congress uh and the house has voted uh, in a couple of cases on kind of getting these things finally off the books um you know this is moving a little bit away from from the icc and the global justice question sure. but i uh do you see any, I mean, do you feel any sense of optimism that there's finally going to be some progress, at least in getting some of these, uh, these things off the books and kind of, uh, uh, you know, cleaning up some of these, some of the authorizations that kind of lazy, you know, become a lazy justification for doing pretty much anything the United States wants to do? Yeah, no, I I mean, I really think it is related because this also is more of a political question than it is legal. Um, Yeah, you know, you're right. I, um, I, I do a lot of work with um, NGO organizations on campaigns on things like this. And I'm, I'm working really closely right now. I want to shout them out. The Friends Committee on National Legislation, a really wonderful Quaker um, advocacy organization that is really focused on bringing um, peace back in the center of U.S. foreign policy. And, and a key part of that is repealing authorizations. You know, I... I I have kind of like a yes and no answer to that. You're right. You know, for a long time, I've been advocating for getting these just totally outstretched authorizations off the books. Um, But I I, I don't, and I say this as a national security lawyer, I don't want us to ever get so fixated on the authorizations question that we forget the broader purpose, which is to end the wars and end the aggression. Um, and so I, it is a really important step and it's incredibly hard fought. It's, I, um, I'll have to come back and tell you stories of just absolute absurdities of lobbying on this thing and just how hard it is to get something off the books that is so clearly outdated. I mean, we're talking here about the Iraq war authorization that was put together to go after Saddam Hussein's regime in Iraq. Like what <laughs> yeah what what are we you know, no argument yeah. that in any way is like still a reality but you know trump did use it for the Soleimani strike um and because it was there because it's there and it's available and so until congress moves to get those things off the books like it makes it easier for the administration to do that 
But I do think it's important to note, you know, as as Biden has been approving these strikes against, you know, quote unquote, Iran backed militias in Iraq and Syria. He hasn't done that. He's just been basically saying, like, this is my constitutional ability as commander in chief. Um, and so that's bad, too. <laughs> that's yeah, really- right. I mean, this this yeah. most recent one, I mean, they, they you know, very explicitly pointed to the idea of, uh, you know, his Article two power of, of self-defense. I mean, self-defense for a military deployment in Syria or Iraq uh, just kind of it seems like it stretches that concept beyond the breaking point. Like what what you know, how can you possibly uh, make that justification? But again, I mean, you know, something that uh, has come up again and again in this, in this discussion is the idea of impunity. The United States, you know, makes these claims because it can and because there's no real way to challenge them. Yeah, you know, our task here, I think, is to make it politically unpalatable for a president to do this at all. Um, and part of that is taking away the explicit authorizations. I, I very much, you know, want us to go after not just this really kind of low-hanging fruit case of the 2002 Iraq War AMF, but more broadly, this long-standing war on terror AMF, the one that was passed in 2001, like that's got to go too. It, I don't think it needs to be replaced either. The conversation in Washington is like, what do we replace it with? Um, and I'm very much of the mind, you don't replace it. You just stop this approach. You realize that this sort of like tit for tat, a strike here, a strike there, you know, like this is no way to to run our foreign policy. It's not really coherent. There's no theory of change that makes any sense. And it's hurting people. It's destructive. It's really, again, it's perpetuating injustices. And it's sort of all in this name of counterterrorism and, and threat inflation that, that really is just... Um, kind of an overstretched justification for the maintenance of empire. And so, yeah, the law's got to go, but the policy's got to go too. I think that's a good place to to end it with that. Uh, the, the policy's got to go. Uh, absolutely. Um, Elizabeth, uh, again, thank you so much uh, for coming on the program. I'll put a, I'll have a link to your uh, fellow travelers piece in the show description um, is there anything else, you know, you, you want listeners to kind of, uh, any place else you want them to check out or, uh, any place they can kind of check out your work or anything, you know, anything you want to plug basically. Yeah. If, um, anybody wants my hot takes on both national security and the bachelor, you're welcome to follow me on Twitter <laughs> at, uh, underscore Elizabeth RB. And I do work, um, as a strategist to support, anti-militarism campaign. So you can see some of the work I do there at elizabethbeavers.com. And um, if you've got something cool going on, let me know. I'm always down to brainstorm and, and keep up the work. Excellent. So yeah, check those out. Uh, I'll link to both of those in the in the show description as well. Uh, Elizabeth, again, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. Thank you. Once again, I would like to thank Elizabeth Beavers for coming on the program and talking to us about uh, the problems in international justice and the unfortunate uh, impunity that the United States has created for itself uh, for any of the terrible things that we do around the world. Uh, Once again, you can find Elizabeth's work uh, at her website, elizabethbeavers.com. You can find her on Twitter at at underscore Elizabeth RB. I will link to both of those in the show description, as well as her recent piece for fellow travelers. Ilan Omar was right. The ugly reality of international justice. Before we go, I have one announcement, a sort of programming note, I guess. 
Uh, I'm starting a new podcast uh, along with foreign exchanges columnist and historian Daniel Bessner uh, that will be called American Prestige. And it's going to be some frank and hopefully entertaining at times, sometimes maybe enraging uh, discussions of discussion of U.S. foreign policy and international affairs. Uh, Daniel and I are going to try to bring together our respective backgrounds where I'm sort of doing kind of the the day to day uh, micro level details of international affairs and what's going on in the world. And he's thinking about sort of big picture uh, topics and issues and the development of U.S. foreign policy and the way the U.S. carries itself around the world today. Uh, and we're going to try to merge those things together. And hopefully what comes out will be entertaining, uh, informative, um, useful, valuable. Uh, I hope it will appeal to foreign exchanges, uh, followers and subscribers and fans. Uh, I hope it will appeal to uh, an even broader audience than that. Uh, so this is going to be a weekly podcast. Uh, we're starting next week, although uh, it's not great timing because I'm going on vacation the following week. But we have a we already have a, an extended interview with a special guest uh, lined up for that week. So uh, the podcast will continue. Uh, we're still working on a few details. We're still getting some uh, uh, some artwork ready to kind of roll out and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But we've we've got the basics lined up and uh, I'm really excited about this and I hope that you guys will check it out. I don't have a website yet to tell you where to go. It will be, of course, on Apple and, and uh, uh, you know, all the places where you find your podcasts. It will be available there. Uh, but be on the lookout for it. Um, you know, I, I people may have questions about what that's going to mean for foreign exchanges. I don't think it's going to mean anything for foreign exchanges. A lot of the work that, that we'll be doing on the show and that I'll be talking about uh, is complementary to the stuff that I do at foreign exchanges. So uh, I don't think anything's going to change. There's a possibility that some of the interviews uh, that I've been doing on this podcast may shift uh, to that podcast. So we may have uh, more subscriber-only episodes of the Foreign Exchanges podcast. Um, that may mean a little bit of uh, an adjustment in terms of the frequency of the with which these podcasts come out. I don't know that yet, but I don't think there's going to be a, a major shift or change uh, in anything that's going on at FX. Uh, it's just about adding, adding something hopefully that will be fun and uh, rewarding and that people will, uh, will respond to. So uh, excited about that. I hope you guys will check it out. I'll have more information about that as we get closer to the launch, which will be next week. Uh, and, uh, you know, I will, uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't really know what else to say there. I'm kind of trailing off. So <laughs> please check it out, uh, when it does come up and, and be on the lookout. I'll be on Twitter and, uh, at the newsletter kind of, uh, promoting this and, and letting you guys know where and when and all the specifics. Uh, as always, I want to thank all of you uh, for checking out Foreign Exchanges and for following it. And if you're a subscriber, if you're on our uh, free mailing list, uh, really thanks for, for sticking with me. Uh, and, um, you know, as we continue this new venture, I hope you'll check that out, too. And I hope it'll uh, hope you'll enjoy it. Uh, so that's it. Uh, that's it for this week. And uh, we will, uh, you know, we'll get back to it next week uh so as always thanks for listening and until next time take care and i'll talk to you soon bye bye